engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Okay, you see we had a problem here. Listen, uh, Mission Control Houston, we are using the payload bay cameras right now to hopefully catch a glimpse of the Russian space When you think about space, what comes to mind? Maybe you think about the space race and NASA putting a man on the moon. Or maybe you think about Elon Musk and the colonization of Mars. Or maybe your favorite TV show growing up. Or invaders from space. Or perhaps, like the creators of this podcast, you are a Carl Sagan fan. But in fact, humankind was pondering what lies beyond long before you or me or Carl Sagan. history and quite possibly much further back than that have always been fascinated with the idea of leaving the planet and traveling into the sky which they define variously as a heavenly place or a supernatural place or a, a physical location filled with other bodies that human beings could visit and occupy and potentially other civilizations and other forms of life that is matthew hirsch a Harvard associate professor of the history of science who focuses on the history of aerospace, computer, and military technologies. We spoke to Dr. Hirsch to learn more about the history and reasoning behind humankind's obsession with space. The motivations for people to travel into space varied very widely. Some of them we might call scientific, more interested in exploration. Others had profound spiritual or religious interests in traveling into space. Um, other people saw space as a potential battleground uh, in which future wars would be fought. And other people were uh, consumed by the idea of um, colonizing other planets, of spreading humanity far and wide, both because they thought it would just be a really neat thing to do and because they did not think that Earth was going to remain a, a habitable place for very long. Many of these motivations are still influential today. NASA, along with many other space agencies around the world, has at its core mission the advancement of space science. The search for life on planets other than our own has profound spiritual and religious implications. And in 2019, the United States Space Force was added as the eighth branch of the U.S. military. But perhaps most intriguing is the idea that humans will eventually need to find a new home in the cosmos. The idea which we still hear today is the notion uh, that humanity can survive as a single planet species. Um, that if it's going to exist in the long term, it needs to spread its wings and uh, settle on other nearby worlds. Um, our planet itself um, is um, a very interesting one, but our star is very, very standard. 
It's been alive for about five, five billion years, uh, and the sun will likely expire or end its sort of main sequence in another five billion years, at which point if humans haven't mastered the technology to leave Earth, um, they're probably not going to. Um, and humanity itself may go extinct as, as just a, a, an interesting flash in the history of the universe that arose, lived, and then died. This notion is kind of horrific to a lot of people who are fascinated by spaceflight and want to see the continued development of the human organism and everything that comes with it. And the death of the sun isn't the only reason humans might want to have a planet B. More immediate threats like nuclear war, pollution, and climate change have been put forth as existential threats to humanity that justify and even necessitate space colonization. The sooner, the better. This argument has garnered support from people like Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, and Jeff Bezos, along with a host of various organizations, such as the Alliance to Rescue Civilization, the National Space Society, and the Mars Society, just to name a few. But many, including Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye, are skeptical that a self-sustaining human settlement on another planet is going to be possible anytime soon. The prime candidate for such a settlement is our planetary neighbor of Mars. But the journey to Mars using current technology takes about seven months. Once humans arrived, they would be treated to a toxic atmosphere average temperatures of around negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and dangerously high levels of radiation. Not exactly a walk in the park. In addition to the incredibly complex technical challenges of establishing a self-sustaining settlement on Mars, many have expressed concerns over the economics of the endeavor, which may cost as much as $10 trillion or more. Such a hefty price tag begs the question, who will pay? This is a very interesting political question. Um, One thing that um, people who work on space policy have wrestled with, particularly in the United States for the last 50 years or so, is figuring figuring out just how interested the average American is in space exploration and how much they're willing to spend on it. And the best data we have is that um, although people seem to think that it's a neat idea, the the support for spending a lot of money to explore space has never actually been there and probably never was there even during the height of the moon race of the 1960s. Others have questioned whether we should be trying to leave Earth at all, positing that Earth is the perfect place for life and humans to thrive. It's an interesting statement. I think it, there is something to the human uh, exceptionalism associated with it that you that to think that things couldn't possibly be better anywhere else. But if we look very clearly at human life on Earth, we see something very interesting. Eighty percent of this planet is covered with water, and human beings aren't born knowing how to swim. So this is actually a terrible planet for human beings to live on. Um, it's also got has polar regions on the north and south that are uninhabitable that will kill humans with exposed skin. And many of the equatorial regions are far too hot to sustain healthy human habitation for an extended period of time. Um, the idea that, that life on Earth is sort of perfectly suited to this environment is also something that Charles Darwin really quite ably criticized. Um, as far as he was concerned, when he saw species around the world, he saw animal and plant species that were actually fairly 
poorly adapted to the environment in which they lived. Um, they had vestigial organs and limbs they didn't need. Um, they, there was just very little indication of intelligent design, but rather random mutation. And his big cognitive leap, his conceptual leap, in creating a theory of natural selection, um, was that organisms didn't have to be perfect to thrive on Earth, they just had to be more perfect than other organisms. <laughs> um, also, although we want to believe that Earth is um, the perfect place for us, um, all we can really say is that it is a place in which we have been able to live. In fact, a recently published study out of Washington State University identified 24 so-called superhabitable planets that may be even better suited to support life than our own planet. This finding comes with a few caveats, though. Firstly, the study focused on factors that affect the likelihood of finding extraterrestrial life on those planets, which does not necessarily equate to improved turnkey livability for humans on that planet. In addition, all of the planets in the study are over 100 light years away, meaning that even if we could travel at the speed of light, they would take more than a century to reach. With super habitable planets laying beyond our reach for the foreseeable future, and Mars, our closest bet in the solar system, having an atmosphere that is too thin and too cold to support water in a liquid form, let's turn our attention back to our own planet. By cosmic standards, our home is pretty ordinary. It is a medium-sized planet orbiting an average star in an unremarkable solar system, located in one of about 200 billion galaxies. But from the perspective of life as we know it, Earth is quite special. For starters, Earth's orbital distance from our particular star results in a temperate climate for most of the planet. This particular climate lends itself to one of the most important features of the Earth, the presence of liquid water, which covers about 71% of the planet's surface. Likewise, our atmosphere has a chemical makeup that lends itself to supporting life. That atmosphere also has a dual role, along with the electromagnetic field emitted by the Earth's core in protecting the Earth's surface from the constant bombardment of solar radiation. Our planet's only moon stabilizes the tilt of the Earth's rotation, without which most regions of the Earth might see seasons ranging from hot equatorial summers to harsh Arctic winters. Even our planetary neighbors, Jupiter in particular, contribute to the stable environment of Earth by absorbing massive numbers of asteroid and comet strikes that would otherwise be impacting Earth. But Earth is more than just the biochemical ingredients for life and a stable environment for them to interact. What we can say about um, the Earth is that when it's working, um, it works reasonably well. It's a coherent ecosystem that has kept uh, life alive for an extended period of time. In a way, it's kind of like a spaceship itself. Uh, and this is an idea that's closely associated with Buckminster Fuller and others, um, that what we have is a self-contained um, closed system that has to recycle the air and the water um, upon it, that has to keep a very large population alive. And if not for the instabilities created by the people and the other organisms that live on it, it does reasonably well. It is this planetary system and the ecosystem that has come to rely on it that humans have adapted to live with. Is the system perfect? 
It's hard to say, and there are signs that point to no. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. The danger, of course, of saying that Earth is a perfect place for life is it leads us to believe that it is a resource that we can consume uh, at will um, to any extent that we are able um, without regard to future generations or the planet's ability to sustain that kind of use. Um, and I think it's it's better to say that it is a delicate and sensitive, in some cases self-regulating, that has managed to support a great deal of life, um, but that requires uh, stewardship and responsibility among the people and other creatures that live upon it. For the foreseeable future, it is very unlikely that we will be able to find or engineer an alternative planet that can substitute for this system. But for that same future, it is possible that Spaceship Earth can continue to operate if we show it care and respect commensurate with its value. Regardless of whether humans go on to colonize space, Earth will always be our cosmic equivalent of a home. And as it was once pointed out, quite aptly in this case, there is no place like home. In 1990, the Voyager 1 space probe took a picture of the Earth as it prepared to breach the edge of our solar system, nearly 4 billion miles from our home. This picture, depicting Earth as a mere speck of a pale blue light on an otherwise dark and empty canvas, was taken at the urging of Carl Sagan to illustrate the importance of our speck. In a now famous speech on the photo, titled The Pale Blue Dot, Carl Sagan said this. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. For the next episode of the series, we'll be diving into the topic of the homes we create on Earth.